Welcome to Beef and Forage Roundup with host Chantal McRae. This podcast is a production of Manitoba Beef and Forage Initiatives, created to share information with farmers, producers, and agriculture enthusiasts, and to showcase the important work that is happening at MBFI. Our podcasts drop on the first and third Wednesday of each month. We will be sharing information through interviews with General Manager Mary Jane Orr, project leads for various projects, MBFI team members, speakers from our extension events, industry leaders, and industry suppliers. This podcast will dig deep into on-farm research and field testing practices related to beef cattle and forage production and efficiency and sustainability of practice in the agricultural industry in Manitoba. We will be sharing information on upcoming training and workshops, field and farm demonstration tours, education materials and events at MBFI, as well as producer profiles from around the province and information on their own trials, challenges, innovation, and results. We encourage you to browse our social media accounts and website for links to more information on projects, upcoming events, and important deadlines. Information on our social accounts and website can be found following the show and in the show notes. As always, we encourage you to email us if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show at information at mbfi.ca. Joe Gardner grew up in the community of Clearwater, Manitoba, and feels very fortunate that he and his wife, Melanie, call Clearwater home today. Together with his parents, brother Sheldon, and his partner, Derek, they run a mixed grain and cattle farm located just off Highway Number 3 in southern Manitoba. In 2016, Joe had a decision to make. He was not enjoying the stress and heavy operating cost that comes with conventional farming, and the draw of a 9-to-5 job was becoming ever more attractive. He had been introduced to the soil health principles in university and started attending soil health conferences, and he knew that if something didn't change, his time farming would be limited. So in 2016, he took a leap, and improving their soil became the focus of the farm. Joe and his family started growing full-season cover crops in 2018, and with the help of a good friend and now business partner, Travis Avery, they documented every step along the way. By the end of the year, they had collected a massive amount of data and knew they could prove the benefits of plant diversity. After another year of data collection and seeing the positive effects that plant diversity had on Joe's farm, they decided to take the leap and Covers & Co. was born. When he's not farming or on the road with Covers & Co. work, he has a number of other hobbies that keep him busy, including baseball, hockey, and curling. He also volunteers on several boards within his small community. His most precious time, however, is spent on the farm with his wife and their ever-growing gang of farm pets. Welcome to the podcast today, Joe. We're really glad that you're able to take some time and meet with us today. Well, thanks for having me. Let's start today's episode with a little bit about your personal background in agriculture and what led you to where you are today. Yeah, so I've got a pretty similar story to um, most people that grew up on a farm. I was always interested in what was going on on the farm. We had a mixed grain and cattle operation, and we also had pigs for uh, most of my time growing up. When I graduated high school, I took a diploma in agriculture from the University of Manitoba. That was 2005. I started farming in 06. Graduated from my diploma and I was 20 years old and wasn't quite ready to come back to the farm yet. So I went back and took my degree in ag business and kind of farmed right throughout with dad in summer times and weekends when I could. When I came back from university, of course, I was the smartest person on the farm by far. 
but things had kind of changed. So in 07, most people will remember, grain prices really took off. So I was actually, at one point in my life, my land rent was $15 an acre, and I was selling canola for $15 a bushel. And I remember looking at dad, my full bank account, an 18-year-old kid thinking, how can you not make money at this? This is, <laughs> what have you been doing for the last 40 years? But as most things do, some poor crop years and high inputs got me into a place where farming wasn't that much fun. We were, you know, essentially doing the same thing, which was putting a ton of inputs in the spring and hoping, just really, really hoping that it rained and we were getting at least that much money back out of the ground. So uh, we had a couple of years that that didn't happen. And I thought, you know, I'm not having fun. I'm stressed out financially. I'm like 20, I don't know what I was, 23, 24. I just kind of had a conversation with my parents and, and said, you know, I'm not enjoying this and I do have a degree. I could, could do something else uh, if I wanted to. But I was very, very fortunate at university. I had one professor that thought outside the box a little. I'll give him a shout out. His name's Martin Entz. He, I took organics with him. And I, I had no interest in, in being an organic farmer, but he taught, taught me some things like the importance of rotation for disease suppression and intercropping. And he was thought of as the crazy guy on, the, on campus, but I took to him like a moth to a flame, and it was just so interesting to me. So at that time, I kind of started going to some soil health conferences. My parents had taken holistic management, so they were always kind of open-minded. So about 10 years ago, which... Well, I guess that would be 2014. We started incorporating some soil health practices. My first fall seed to cover crop, which was a wild success. I thought, oh, well, this is the future. This is what we're going to do. Sadly, from that point on, we didn't have much success with fall seeded uh, annual cover crops. But it just kind of triggered a curiosity in my brain that literally has not stopped today. So I'm forever grateful to the people that presented the ideas to me and of course my parents for being open-minded enough because a lot of the things that we're doing on the farm my dad doesn't understand but does he support me and I know there's lots and lots of people my age that don't have that same opportunity so I'm super grateful and it has been a long crazy winding road uh, for the last 10 years but I wouldn't change any of it there's been lots of stressful times but the the good far outweigh the bad that's kind of an awesome story and the fact that you have that support like you said and have parents who are open-minded and willing to allow you to kind of run with some ideas. That's really awesome. Well, I'll, I'll tell one side story. The first farm to field day we ever did at our place. I have a friend that works at uh, NDSU and he brought about 40 farms. So I guess ge you should understand geographically, we're six miles from the North Dakota border. So there was a busload of farms came, came across to see the tour and we were doing some cover crops and rotational grazing. And I was walking with a guy back to the bus at the time I was probably maybe 26 or 27 and he was probably 45 to 50 and he looked at me and he said how do you convince your dad to let you do all this stuff and I thought well if your dad if you're 45 and your dad's not letting you do it now then she's probably not going to change now so yeah at that time I it was just I didn't realize how lucky I had it but the more I talked to producers and of course father-son or father-daughter or mother-son relationships, everyone's unique and different. I'm just very, very fortunate. My parents are who they are. Yeah, for sure. And are you still farming today then? You betcha. I mean, kind of. I spend a lot of time. So I'm sitting in Edmonton, Alberta. 
my mom and dad are still, although not financially invested in the farm, dad is out of the farm every day. And then uh, my brother and his partner, they both teach, but they're also becoming involved in the farm as well. So we actually have two of the younger generation involved in the farm. And it, it's great because it allows me to do what else we're, what we're going to talk about today, which is uh, be involved with the business of, of Covers & Co. And um, yeah, kind of spread the word about plant diversity. Awesome. And I have one more question, I guess, about your personal ties and egg. So do you still have both cattle and grain? You betcha. So the farm today, it looks like we have uh, scaled down a bit with the grain side. Well, I always tell people we're, we run 200 uh, commercial Angus cows. We're actually a little bit below that. I think we'll be, we'll calve out about 175 this year. And then we still grain farm. I mean, some form of grain farm, we do it a little bit different now with uh, utilizing full season cover crops, but we've got about a thousand arable acres and we'll usually harvest about seven or 800 of those a year. And I should say the uh, the focus of the farm now has, I have mixed feelings about the term regenerative, just because industry's kind of grabbed it and latched onto it. Now nobody even knows what it means anymore, but our farm is more soil focused, plant diversity focused, and how to best stack the enterprises on the farm to to maximize efficiency. So we're always looking to intercrop our grain land so we can utilize uh, grazing for livestock. And we're always looking to get the livestock on the grain land to cycle minerals and reduce the input costs on the, on the grain side. Awesome. It's nice to talk to people who get it from the producer lens, but they're also selling the product and using it on their own farm kind of hand in hand. Well, for better or worse, I don't have a ton of time. My wife and I got married a, a year and a half ago. So I'm a evenings and weekend farmer and she may get sick of it, but I, I will be, farming will be the last thing that uh, I'll give up. I just enjoy it too much. What a different story from, like you were saying years ago when it, you were feeling like it was too stressful and it was something that maybe you were willing to give up. So that's pretty neat. A hundred percent. You betcha. So let's jump into Covers & Co. a little bit. For listeners who maybe are unfamiliar with the company, can you give them a bit of background on Covers & Co. and the mission and goals? Yeah, you betcha. So, I mean, just a, a, a little bit of history of how we started. So I was kind of the same as everyone that goes down the path. You know, Gabe Brown was a big influencer on me. But kind of, you know, six or seven years ago, there was this underground soil health movement it was it, it was the most fun because the people that were you saw the same people at the at all these conferences and everyone was just so passionate and so excited and the buzz was have you tried a full season cover crop what did you put in the full season cover crop did you graze it did you plow it down I remember one winter it was just a, a buzz so I, I came home I was so excited to try so I had a piece of land all picked out the worst piece of land you know we have and I told my friend. Travis Avery, who we've been friends since we were kids, he was working for a company that represented a soil test lab. So I told him what we were doing. I'm going to mix a bunch of plant species together. We're not going to fertilize. I said, what do you think is going to happen, Trav? And, and he took a probe, looked at the soil test, and he said, well, nothing's going to happen. You're going to grow a ter- terrible crop. So, and I said, right, well, I can't disagree with you. You're a smart guy. So we sowed the crop. I mean, conditions just ended up being absolutely perfect. I knew from the moment that crop was this high, something had changed. Something was going to change in my life because I I always told Melanie, I'm going to tuck the cover crop into bed because there was not one night or one day that I wasn't in that field just observing and just amazed 
Unfortunately, Travis was the same. He was, he didn't understand what was going on. And I knew that both of us, the way our minds work, this, we probably weren't going to be able to shut up about this. So that was, I think, 2018, we did that or 2017, even the years are going by too fast. Sorry, I, I can't keep up with them. But anyway, so from that point on, we said, well, this is the future. This is this is what agriculture is going to look like. Um, so from that moment, we just started, we, we kind of got to work. We just, I mean, any experiment we could do, soil test-wise, feed test quality-wise, pictures, data, just trying to understand better what is going on. I mean, I know more about soil chemistry now than the University of Manitoba uh, could ever have taught me. So we actually started the company March 17th. It was it was like a day or two after the lockdowns had started, which was scary in and of itself because a, a startup business under the best of times, you know, lots are set up to, to fail and lots don't work out. So we were scared, but we just got to work. The vision for the company has always been trying to solve on-farm problems with plant diversity. And a big, big issue with that is in, in our own journey was there was lots of education out there, but it was scattered all over the place. It was in language that you couldn't understand. So Trav and I, what we, I guess our, our Northern light was we wanted to lead with education. We knew this was the blueprint of mother nature and mother nature had 400 million years to figure this stuff out. So that was our kind of our Northern light was let's, let's uh, we understand mother nature as best we can. And let's just educate and tell a story in a way that will resonate with farms and farms can understand you're not going to implement something on your farm that that you have no clue what's going on yeah so that's kind of the start we got going in 2020 so we're now in 2024 so this will be our fourth or fifth uh growing season yeah and it's been it's been pretty crazy the uptake has been blown past our our, our wildest expectations that brings some headaches like running a business things that, that that i definitely wasn't taught or or still learning to this day but it's been uh, it's been a wild ride, and and no matter how stressed out I get, I always look back a year or two, and I forget the stressful times, and I just remember the people I met and the relationships, and um, so it's been a wild ride, but it's been it's been great. I wouldn't change a thing. That's so exciting. I have a couple of comments. The first one is I love how he's like, this is not going to work. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what a vote of confidence. This is going to be terrible. <laughs> well, and, and he's he was just so smart from a soil chemistry standpoint. We went to university together, and. When he said that, I was like, oh, right. Of course, he's right. <laughs> Trav studies this stuff every day. So, yeah, it, and it was amazing. I, I, I'm not kidding you when I say when it was this high out of the ground, it looked healthier than any crop I'd ever seen. And, and I spent so much time out in that field, whether it was I was getting home from a ball game at three o'clock in the morning, I'd hop on the quad and head out, or I had five minutes to kill. I was standing in that field learning what was going on. That's super cool. And I really love the, the kind of the quote that you said there, the Covers & Co. is trying to solve on-farm problems with plant diversity. I think that there's so many things that if we pay attention to nature, like you've said, that we can kind of take those problems that are emerging in farmland and pasture land and really try and work with nature to solve those. So I really like that. Well, we've we've tried the other way for 100 years. Mm -hmm. we've, we've tried solving problems synthetically and fighting Mother Nature every step along the way. And the first thing that they'll teach you when you get into the regenerative or the soil health movement is Mother Nature's blueprint is perfect. And if you're fighting her, you're going to lose that battle. So how can we look at the landscape a different way or look at our farms a different way to maximize the amount 
of life on our farm and maximize the impression that mother nature can have on it rather than trying to man make something that doesn't fit with her model mm -hmm. yeah it might look good for a few years but kind of what the long-term impact is of that is is what we're really thinking about um for sure so way back in episode 22, I chatted with Owen Taylor of Covers & Co. about some of the on-farm trials and overview of what Covers & Co. is. What's been happening at Covers & Co. in the past year since I chatted with him? Lots is going on. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about the, the corn intercropping. So maybe I'll save that for, I know we got more questions coming on that. But still just absolutely trying to understand cover crops just more thoroughly. I mean, I'm always humbled by mother nature and plant diversity. I've now been in hundreds and hundreds of, of cover crop fields and no two one look exactly alike. And, you know, if I had, a, if I had known the soil type, uh, amount of precipitation, seeding date, seeding depth, herbicide, stuff like that, I still wouldn't be able to to know exactly what species are going to come. Every time I walk into a field, there's there's understanding, there's learning. So that's what we're uh, trying to do. We've finally, the company's at a point where we can utilize some third-party research, which is you know expensive, but we think it's necessary, but also doing on-farm trials. So we're really, really fortunate that our customer base is excited and, and really want uh, to... Um, absorbed and adapt to a changing environment. So we have tons of farms that are willing to do on-farm research uh, for us. So we've been doing lots of fertilizer trials. I'm going to touch on when we talk about corn, uh, some field view data that we're seeing, which is just satellite imagery, um, really makes it easy for, for utilizing trials. Of course, still pounding the water infiltration drum. Before I'm done my career, I will make that popular. It hasn't, it hasn't had the uptake that I thought it would. And also we've done a ton of, I guess, different third-party research, of course, but they're kind of doing some different trials, not just fertilizer trials, but uh, incorporating total plant biomass, the feed quality, the biomass, soil testing after water infiltration. So we've had some really amazing partners that have stepped forward and really they've got funding or a curiosity to look into cover crops and it's not costing us a thing. So it's, it's just, it's kind of an amazing time to be involved uh, in the industry where there's just so much excitement. And now we've got some very smart people from different research organizations and universities that are getting excited about it. So it's Venice during the Renaissance. This is the, the snowball is rolling down the hill and we're just learning more and more information. So all we're trying to do is just gather more and, and find more partners that are excited about uh, the future of plant diversity. That's exciting. So lots and lots of things going on at Covers & Co. these days, and I'm sure only more is going to happen at this point. It's not going to slow down any. I mean, the, my personality type, I, I'm not, I would never be able to have a nine to five job. Uh, the best thing about the industry we're in is I will never know all this information and I'm cool with it, but it's, it, it just, uh, the innovation that, uh, is happening and the innovation that the room for innovation in the future because the possibilities are little literally endless it's just it's so exciting and I, I look forward to the future so much that's awesome for this episode i relied heavily on the covers and co website and i'll link the whole link to the intercropping corn and forage soybean page in the show notes um, but it's coversandco.ca is where i was headed for the majority of the research so let's jump into the 
idea of intercropping forage soybeans into corn, what makes forage soybeans different from grain soybeans? Good question. Can I can I reverse back and tell a backstory? Is Absolutely. that cool? Absolutely. Yeah. So inside the the movement, and and of course I've been doing it for years, but I want to shout out people like Brooks White, Scott Chalmers, Ryan Boyd, the early adapters to corn intercropping, and they really got me interested in the idea. So every single year, I mean, we were growing corn for grazing. Um, we'd done a little bit of silage corn. We started in the last few years doing corn for combining. So I loved the idea of intercropping corn. The rows were so wide and there was so much opportunity, you know, between the 30 inch space to get some plant biomass growing and really balance a feed source that's high carbon. And we want to balance the, the carbon and the, and the nitrogen in the blend, both for the livestock that are going to consume it, but in the soil as well, the soil microbiology. So we had tried grain soybeans. We had tried hairy vetch. You know, I tried radish, turnip, Italian ryegrass, uh, you name it, forage peas. There was always two issues. If you were going to wait till braided it and the corn was at V5 and you seed the corn in, well, by the time that little seed becomes two inches big, that corn plant is now probably six feet tall. 96% of every plant is sunlight and water. That little seedling doesn't have much of a chance. And that's exactly what we saw. We just saw very, very sporadic and poor results. The flip side is if you're going to seed at the same time as the corn, you don't have a ton as far as herbicide options. And we, uh, so today we, we go around a pretty corn, but we've tried um, open pollinated corn, round a pretty corn with hairy vetch, which is somewhat herbicide tolerant. Uh, it works okay, depending on the year, but uh, again, results were pretty sporadic. So to give my, uh, I, I have no original ideas. I just listen to smart people and then figure out how I can implement them on my farm. A very good friend of mine, Darcy Stewart, uh, messaged me a few years ago and he said, well, they're growing soybeans in the Southern United States and they're crazy, crazy long season. And he said, I did some research. There's some forage varieties that are Roundup Ready. Wouldn't a Roundup Ready forage soybean with corn, you could seed it at the same time, you could spray the herbicide. He said, wouldn't that work out as far as, a, you know, a successful intercrop? And it was just a light switch, just like that. Of course, that's going to work. So why a forage soybean versus a grain soybean? So I'll get into the weeds a little bit, but it has to do with vegetative time. So uh, every single plant on planet Earth that's vegetative captures sunlight energy and then releases a, a percentage of that energy to the soil biology. And that's a, a symbiotic relationship. So the plant's giving uh, the soil biology energy and that biology is then going into the soil profile accessing minerals that plant needs and bringing them back to the plant. So as soon as that plant hits reproduction, that relationship stops. That plant says, hey, thanks biology. Wouldn't have got here without you, but now I need to capture sunlight energy to produce seeds to propagate and think about the next generation. So always when we had Roundup Ready soybeans and our Roundup Ready corn, that plant would hit vegetation about the summer solstice. So in Manitoba, that's say June 20th. The plant's six inches tall, and we've stopped producing root exudates and, and capturing nitrogen. That plant is now reproductive, so its focus is seeds, not producing plant biomass. So as soon as a plant hits reproduction, its energy needs spike, because that plant needs energy to produce seeds, of course. 
And that doesn't work that well underneath a corn canopy, just because even if you get your rows spacing right and, and in the right direction, there's just not enough sunlight there to produce both a large biomass plant and to be producing high energy seeds. So uh, the idea with forage soybean is uh, that plant is not hitting reproduction for 110 days. So these are maturity eight beans. They come out of uh, South Carolina. So to put in perspective, I think the beans we grow in Manitoba are like O1s or double zero one. So they're like 80 days or something longer till they hit reproduction. And the idea is pretty simple. So now it, rather than shutting off that tap to the soil biology and having a reproductive plant that's going to produce seeds, we have a vegetative plant that's going to grow and produce plant biomass year round. 110 days, you know, usually we don't even have that many frost-free days. So the advantage is that plant keeps growing. It keeps the tap from the sun to the soil biology that keeps slowing. And we'll talk a little bit about what that means for improved. Well, I mean, residual nitrogen is a big one, but improved soil aggregates and the function of the soil, but also it just, as long as there's moisture present, that plant will just keep putting on leaves and keep putting on leaves right through the year. So in a livestock scenario, it works really great, especially in silage for uh, increasing protein in the feed source, but also the chopper's not getting everything there's grazing after. And on our farm, we use the bean with grain corn. So we combine the corn and then kick the cows out after. So that was a very long-winded answer. And I know I probably answered a few more questions in the future, but yeah, that's the idea behind forage soybean versus a grain soybean. So you've talked about this a little bit in that answer already, but why do soybeans pair really well with corn? So I honestly, Chantel, I thought about this, this question about how deep I want to get into it. I mean, the short answer is because the soybeans are vegetative and they're a legume, they just have a much, much lower uh, carbon need. So their carbon to nitrogen ratio is far, far lower than the corn, which is really high carbon and low um, nitrogen. So when we're talking about soil health, the gold standard is the soil biology is 24 parts carbon to one part nitrogen, and that equals a balanced ration in the soil. And the biology can make stable soil aggregates. Once we have stable soil aggregates, we can infiltrate water, we can infiltrate nitrogen, we can infiltrate oxygen. There's pore space for the biology to then access the minerals that those plants need. It's a huge win from a soil standpoint. What most farms understand is, hey, when I sow corn, we have a really, really high nitrogen bill. Most farms also understand the idea that, hey, if we keep it vegetative, we can produce more nitrogen. And then we use mycorrhizal fungi, the communication network in the soil to actually transfer those minerals. So I'll be 100% honest with you. There are farms that are reducing their fertilizer rates in their corn. Mine is one of them, but we're not recommending that at all. We need, to, we need more data and more time we're doing a ton of trials this year based on this exact topic. If we can reduce fertilizer to the corn without getting a yield hit. But I know it's definitely happening. I just, I don't want to make a recommendation to a farm and then them have, you know, wishing they, they kept more fertilizer. So yeah, that's the reason why they pair so nice together is it's the vegetative aspect of the, of the bean. Those beans just are so slow to establish, you know, once the corn has tasseled and its uptake starts to 
reduce, that's really when the beans kind of start really capturing the sunlight energy. They've got to develop a root system. And as long as, uh, you know, we're not getting minus three or four temperatures, those beans just keep putting on vegetation, putting on vegetation. Obviously, huge, huge advantages. They're producing root exudates. So that microbiology in the soil is staying fed. The soil aggregates are, are being kept stable. And we have a functioning soil right throughout the year. There's really like a whole handful of benefits as to why they pair so well together. Yeah. And I'm really glad that you put that caveat on there of you're able to reduce some of your inputs, but maybe at this point, it's not necessarily a recommendation. It's just, this is what we're doing and this is how it's working in some of the trials we've done, but there's a little bit more research needed. So, yeah. So I guess I could follow that up with a point. So in year one, Definitely not recommending reduction. What I always say to every farm is you should be, even if it was monocrop corn, you should be trialing your, your fertilizer anyway. You know, you should try a strip with half the fertilizer. You should try a strip with no fertilizer. This is how we find out if our inputs are actually paying for themselves. If we treat the entire field 100% the same, you know, how do we know if our dollar invested was giving us, you know, even a dollar back? So yeah, I, I highly, highly recommend for farms to do trials. And in year one, just do what you were going to do anyway, and the beans are a nice benefit. Now, with that being said, in areas where we're getting even average precipitation to above average precipitation and good, good plant biomass stands on the beans, we're seeing significant residual nitrogen numbers. So, you know, we're, we've seen numbers as high as 60 pounds uh, to the acre on 30 inch corn, residual nitrogen. I mean, uh, and dry areas, you know, we've seen soil tests that have shown no residual nitrogen. So it really depends on what the conditions are like in the year, but definitely be soil testing either that fall or the following spring after growing the intercrop. And then I'm, I'm okay with, with reducing inputs if, you know, there's 50 residual pounds left over for the following year. In year two, we can talk about input reduction, but just currently we don't have enough data on the intercrop itself to to be doing recommendations that I that I'm comfortable with. I really like how you mentioned like even if it's a monocrop corn crop, having those trials that you're doing year over year, say on your own land, and just allowing yourself to find out more information about are your inputs really paying for themselves. It just makes so much sense rather than just planting it the same way every year and then just putting in the same inputs and never really knowing what benefit you're achieving through those inputs. And I think farms would be shocked. I mean, mm -hmm. it's one thing that was kind of eye-opening to me going from, you know, taking a curiosity in in this, the soil and the inputs and, and whatnot is, you know, proper applications of fertilizer, trials where we've cut it in half with proper applications it's amazing how how many times the extra 50%, you know, maybe you're getting more yield, but is it economically a good decision because you're putting in so much more dollars and in inputs? Yeah, and it's it, it, it was eye-opening to me and it definitely a good financial decision for me, some of these trials. So I always recommend it because if you ask farms, what's the worst part about corn? They're going to tell you it's the input bill. Well, mm -hmm. let's figure out how many inputs we need to maximize profitability. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the 2023 soybean corn trials, kind of where they were located, how many trials were conducted, how they were implemented, et cetera. So the nice thing about this field view that we are now subscribed to, it's free. As long as you have a TUA number, I think it's either BASF or um, Bayer. 
has the system. So the neat thing is because it's satellite imagery and you get images every three days, as long as you go on, log on and make a border to your field, literally everything can be a trial. So last year was kind of the launch year or a soft launch year for uh, the forage soybeans. So many, many producers, if it was a hundred acre field, they were trying the beans on 10 acres. And now once we get the locations of those fields, literally we can have every field where there was a trial in it. We can see it's not biomass that's run over scale or, or soil test probes, but it's a biomass estimation of what's going on in the field. So we've probably got about 10 of those. Conception in the industry has always been, if you're growing an intercrop with corn, well, you're just going to, you're going to have worse corn. Even in the dry areas that we saw with the field view, every single trial that we saw with the, the field view data saw increase in plant biomass, even in, even in dry areas. So yeah, it's, it's exciting because this year I'm going to push it even further. When the beans were going out last year, we didn't know, I didn't know field view existed, or at least I didn't know how it would be relevant to, to this idea, but I'm hoping for this year, we have like 40 different trials of side-by-side monocrop corn versus soybeans. Cause it just seems unless our data is just unbelievably skewed this year, we're producing more plant biomass every time with the intercrop than with monocrop corn. Now, with that being said, we did some research with some research partners, Partners, so Lana Shaw at Southeast Research in Southeast Saskatchewan did some trials. Mary Jane Orr at uh, MBFI did some trials. I honestly, I haven't had a ton of time to follow up with them to get the data down, but it's something I'm planning on the new year, just so we can have uh, more of a library on the website. And I should mention there was uh, Scott Chalmers at Melita did, uh, so he's the original corn intercropper. He's got the most amazing data set of any corn intercropping. He's a mentor of mine. They did one trial for us and and for whatever reason, the, the soil baked or or whatever. So the trial didn't didn't work out. The beans never came out of the ground. And then they went back and seeded them later with a hoe. But it was probably the one trial that that didn't work out. and. Of course, it's the person that I wanted to work out for the most. Going forward, I mean, obviously soil testing because of the residual nitrogen. We've got a bunch of those numbers coming in and just just looking. It's a little bit of information overload right now. Just looking to file those and kind of make sense of, of some of them. And then going into to 2024 this year, we've got some, in my opinion, just really, really exciting trials going on. I've been in contact with the head agronomist at Patterson Grain. They want to do some row spacing trials with the corn and some spacing trials with the corn and beans. Our theory is if you grow corn on 30 inch spacing and you put a bean row directly between, so 15 inches apart from the corn, that in theory, we won't see any yields drop from the corn grain at all. So that, I mean, that's just very exciting the prospect of grain farms actually adapting some intercropping practices because, uh, you know, we're not seeing yield drag and we're seeing positive impacts on the soil. So, yeah, lots of research going on. I had a few thoughts and I was looking kind of at my questions later on as you were talking about those, but 
I guess you've already mentioned that the inclusion of the soybeans doesn't necessarily impact your corn yield. Do you want to discuss a little bit about why that is and kind of the root structures and what's happening below the soil that allows those to not impact each other? Sure. And I should be the thank you for the follow up because I should be a little more clear. When I'm talking the field view data, that is just plant biomass. So that's not grain corn yield. That is just how many plants or total amount of biomass the, the, the plants equate to in an image. And then it gives an estimate. So it gives a great broad painted picture, but you know, it's not the most scientific data. When we're talking about grain, corn, and beans, which I do on my farm, we have always seen a yield hit. So obviously I do trials every year. At virtually every year, the 30-inch corn with no intercrop is the highest yielding. And you know, we've seen, you know, usually it's about 5% decrease in yield. Depending on the year, it can be three, it can be seven. You know, uh, we had one producer, it was closer to 10. So that management practice is sowing the corn on 30-inch spacing and then coming back either before or after and solid seeding beans at 20 pounds an acre just with a drill. So it's just very random where the soybeans are being placed. Where we've seen, in my opinion, the best results and where we're going in the future is if we can grow corn on 30-inch spacing with a soybean row right between so that soybean, like those, those roots are, you know, not robbing from one another. Yield potential is, if not the same, very, very similar. So I'm not saying still in a silage scenario, solid seeding the beans after, after sowing the corn. I think that's, I still think that is a fantastic idea. And that's what most producers, the equipment that most producers have at their disposal and works great you're going to grow more plant biomass and that increase in plant biomass will be a, a higher protein feed along with all the soil benefits that I had chatted about. But what I'm kind of excited about, I mean, selfishly for my own farm, of course, but wanting to make a change in the, in the greater egg industry is if we can get these, the beans just a little bit further away from the, the corn row for, so the corn can establish you know, how little can we reduce corn yields? And if we can start proving some of these numbers out that there's no yield reduction or minimal yield reduction combined with, I mean, not only the soil benefits, but also, you know, there's obviously lots of funding and subsidies for these practices. You know, can we make this a mainstream practice in agriculture? Because I just think the benefits are just undeniable. Thanks for clarifying that. And I might've jumped to that conclusion too. And I, I, Chantel, I should say something very, very, very important. When doing the corn intercrop, two things. If you're growing monocrop corn, a really good practice is to sow that corn east and west. The sun travels around the southern horizon. If you sow your corn east-west, I've just seen it time and time again when trying to understand intercrops. That sunlight, before it gets to the soil surface, has to penetrate either three or four rows of corn. So by the time you go through three or four rows of corn, there's virtually no sunlight left down there. So in a monocrop corn scenario, that is definitely beneficial because you're capturing more sunlight. Biggest limiting factor with corn where we live is it's sunlight. So if you're growing monocrop corn, you're just going to capture more sunlight if you if you sow your, your corn east-west. 
Now, this is the most important thing. And I assume why people are listening is because they're interested in, in the intercrop. Corn intercrop has to be seeded north-south. It's the difference between having a really, really good intercrop and having next to nothing. I mean, rain be damned, everything else be damned. 96% of a plant is sunlight and water. Of course, the soybean is chosen specifically because it has a lower sunlight need, but no plants can grow without any sunlight. So sowing it north and south, your corn, that sun is shining right down that row at least once a day. And it seems to be enough sunlight so that a vegetative legume can thrive, but not be choked out by the corn, which I see it every every single year on our headlands. Of course, you have some headlands that are sown east-west. You know, you can have a wonderful intercrop and where it's sown uh, east-west, it's a fraction of what it is where it's north-south. So that's something that's very, very important. That's really interesting, but makes total sense when you explain it like that. It took me four years to figure it out. So I'm not that smart of a guy, but it uh, it hit me one day and I thought, oh, I wish I figured that out three or four years ago because crops that should have been amazing weren't and crops that should have been poor, you know, where I had decent results with and and just could not figure it out. It was just, uh, it was so confusing. But of course, so many questions can be answered by the sun. What benefits does adding soybeans to corn have from a cattle feeding perspective? Yeah, so obviously the the number one use for the the soybean or the intercrop now is the advantage of, of utilizing it for livestock. It, when somebody's chopping corn silage, I mean that's obviously the the number one use right now. Again, if we're getting average rainfall to above average rainfall, we've seen some pretty crazy results, especially in like some areas that have irrigation where water is not a limiting factor it's just it's a no-brainer a couple areas in alberta or sorry one farm specifically but the area generally was was pretty good Uh, one farm was talking about a three ton increase in total plant biomass and over three percent increase in protein on the feed source now again it's going to come those results come with either average or above average rainfall but even in, in dry scenarios where soybeans are stunted or, you know, maybe a foot or two tall, there's still the opportunity for grazing after the corn crop. And that's something that almost across the board, farms that have utilized the bean say they love. We've all seen the silage corn crop. Once the trucks leave, it, you know, it's just a bunch of bamboo sticks sticking out of the ground. Everyone turns their cows out, but, you know, what are they going to eat? That's one neat thing. After these fields are silaged, they are lush green still. So obviously utilizing grazing after after silage is, is a big one. Something that we're having some issues figuring out, which I wish honestly was easier, is grazing corn. So something really, really neat is in the intercrop when the uh, we get our first frost, say the middle of September, end of September, whatever it is, It'll kill the corn. The frost will, will kill the corn, but anywhere where the beans are in the corn, the corn seems to protect them. And those beans can take like up to probably minus three, depending on, you know, humidity and stuff like that. But where the beans grow with no corn growing, if it gets to minus 0.5, those beans are dead. But there's something about the corn that protects those beans that allows them to stay green and vegetative. So it can handle a few frosts of, of minus one and, and have no issue. 
The problem is for corn grazing is, you know, most people are kicking the cows out in January. Well, by January, we've had negative 30. And by January, usually we have snow. So what happens is, is say minus even five comes, the beans are terminated. They're a vegetated bean. So they're crazy affected by frost. You know, the plant will shrivel up and leaves will drop. Cows will go and, and pick up the leaves, but not if not if we get a foot of snow. So we actually had a producer that had swathed his corn bean intercrop. I actually chatted with him last night. He said it, it, it worked great. But with that being said, I've, I've, uh, I chatted with a vet uh, here last week. We were talking about swathing because they were curious about growing the intercrop. And, uh, and she said she would never swath corn because if you get moisture in the fall, moisture can sit in the cobs and, and mold can be an issue. So it's something I wish was a lot easier because it's, it's just we can grow more plant biomass. The corn grazing field uh, always gets corn on corn on corn. So we can start reducing fertilizer, balancing carbon to nitrogen, just have a healthier soil for that practice that is generally pretty hard on the, on the soil. And then I guess the last one I should mention is grain corn. So lots of farms say to me, Joe, I'm not set up for corn. Well, let me tell you, first and foremost, I am not set up for corn either. We were fortunate. We have a relationship with a feedlot. We combine our, our corn as wet, so 28 to 30% moisture, haul it all off immediately to the feedlot. And what we've been doing in years past is turning the cows out as soon as the, the combines are off the field. So this year it worked amazing. I think we fed just under 200 cows and 200 calves and bulls and heifers, all the rest. Up to December 20th, we'd fed like 40 bales worth of hay. But from the start of October to end of December, those cows, calves, everything was grazing corn stover and soybean residue. So which, which is great, but truth be told, like we're not going to have, every year's not going to be like that where we're not getting snow. So an idea I've had talking with some producers is uh, once the combines are off the field, I mean, it's just it's just green, lush, lush green field and corn stover. Uh, next year, we're going to try and take the swather out and swath the uh, vegetative green soybean matter and the corn stover together in a swath and, and try and swath graze it because there's just such a phenomenal amount of, of high quality plant biomass that's left there. Like even after combining this year, we we were in the vicinity of 100 cows per acre per day when you consider the calves on them. Well, if that feed cost, my winter feed cost is $3 a day and I got 100 days out of the corn stover, well, that added $300 uh, an acre value to my corn crop, which I don't need to get 150 bushel corn when, you know, the cows are paying me at least that back on the grazing side of things, not to mention the improved soil quality and the residual nitrogen for the, for the following year. So Chantal, I've honestly forgot where your question started, but those are kind of the three uses and the three challenges that, that we're seeing and three challenges, but also the positives that we're seeing with those, those three systems. No, that was perfect. Cause it all flowed really well together. And it answered my next question too, which was the impact on the cost of winter feeding. Did the trials include looking at economics? And if so, what was noticed when weighing the cost of the seed and seeding of the soybeans compared to having them as a protein source in silage systems or grazing systems? The silage one is the most obvious. And I, 
So I was telling Chantel, my mom is a nutritionist, so I'm giving her some feed tests and I was going to kind of do a little cost exercise on this exact question. Sadly, I don't have the numbers here. I actually haven't even followed up with her. But it's improved, of course. Increased protein. Protein's the most expensive thing to maintain cows in the in the winter. From a grazing standpoint, you know, those numbers are going to be tough because depending on snowfall, you know, depending on graze timing, you know, swathing or standing, you know, all those are going to play a factor. I guess I can I can give you numbers from my own farm, which I guess I kind of did on the harvesting for for corn side of things. It's the biggest no-brainer on our farm outside, I would say, of, of growing full season cover crops and grazing full season cover crops. So in our system, our cover crop land, 100% of the time, we follow with corn. Corn's a high input crop, and we just see benefits of having the cover crop the year before. You know, corn's a very mycorrhizal dependent crop, and the cover crop ticks because of the mycorrhizal hyphae network. So corn after cover crops just seems to be an excellent fit. We're already reducing our inputs on our corn, I think, just because of the management practice of the cover crops. Obviously, adding the beans is going to help as far as nitrogen capture and, and biological stimulation for the rest of the minerals. Like For example, last year, it was not a good corn growing year, and I'm not a good corn farmer. Our corn went about 95 bushels to the acre, something like that. We sold it for $7 right off the combine. So... I mean, just for round math, let's call it 107 bucks is, is $700 an acre. The, I told you the grazing numbers was about 100. We'll call it at, at three bucks, let's say. Well, there's another $300. So without the benefit of water infiltration, residual nitrogen, the benefits that the intercrop brings, we're at $1,000 an acre on a crop that, of course, corn seed is expensive. On a crop that I put 40 pounds of nitrogen to and... I forget, a little bit of, of alpine and, of course, a herbicide pass. But having the livestock, of course, to realize uh, some of that opportunity. But, I mean, you're not getting those type of returns without the, you know, either the cover crop before the intercrop or the cattle. So that's where this crop just works so perfect for our system. I mean, start doing the math on, on 200 cows, three months worth of feed. It's probably where we may are going to make our profit on our cattle herd this year. Winter feed is the most expensive cost. So again, we got pretty lucky this year with the with the lack of snow. But I mean, unless you plan for it, we can get no snow, and that's still not going to happen unless you've got the you've got the plant biomass there and made the plan. So for us, it's just a really really easy way for a a low risk crop to have high profit potential. I'm not super in on the economics of all of the crops in our farm, but I'm sure that Brett said in the past that our grazing corn with the intercrop is the most profitable crop that we can grow. To Brett's point, I literally think we've had this, we've had him and I have had this conversation. <laughs> it just works so nice as an insurance policy as well. You mm -hmm. know, I think to be 21 where it just didn't rain at home at all. And we were trying to source feed, having that, corn there i mean of course our plan is to combine it but in an event where we have no other feed well at least you can produce you know a decent amount of plant biomass even in a tough year with the corn so yeah it just it works really well for us and 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 again 
it fits really well with our system because we're utilizing the cover crops anyway. We like intercropping. It's an easy intercrop to implement. And then, of course, the, the livestock just makes the, the system tick. You've talked a bit already about the benefits that the system has for soil health, but is there anything else that you want to add in there about kind of why this system works so well and what it's doing for the soil? Yeah, so I, I don't want to bore people. I'm a, I'm a huge lover of carbon and nitrogen. I've touched on this point, but I understood water infiltration before I ever understood the chemistry in the soil, before I ever understood the importance of carbon to nitrogen or nitrogen to sulfur, all these, these ratios of life. Because, and, and I'll harp on it again, and I joked at the start that I will make, before I die, I will make water infiltration popular on farms. It's just an amazing way to understand your soil. So if your soil can infiltrate water, I mean, that's just such an easy metric. Pound a six-inch cylinder into the ground and you dump 500 milliliters of water in, and then you time it. And the more you do it, the more you understand different soil types, different uh, management practices, different crops, different intercrops, what effect they've had on the infiltration rates uh, on your land. And if you can infiltrate water, it just tells you so much more than how much water can go in, which of course is a good thing and something everything everyone can understand. We want water going in, not running off. But if we've got water going in, what it means is we have stable soil aggregates. If we have stable soil aggregates, we have a healthy biological community that has a balanced feed source that can now go into the soil profile and access those minerals. So I say this because year on year on year on year, I have done water infiltration tests on monocrop cornfields that are in line with conventional water infiltration rates, which is about one inch in one hour. Of course, if you're doing water infiltration on your farm, if you want more information, I'll give a quick plug on our website. If you go to the resources pages, I spent days and days working on a uh, water infiltration protocol, where to do it, where to set benchmarks, how many times you should do it. So I'm making it sound simpler than it is, but the key is you're doing it. So you're doing it so you understand it. But anyway, on our monocrop cornfields, it's pretty general in our area, one inch of rain takes about an hour to infiltrate. Now, where we have a vegetative soybean in with the crop, in fall, this is no joke, infiltration rates are 10 times better. And it makes sense because once that corn crop starts tasseling, it stopped producing root exudates. When it's that plant stopped producing root exudates, that biology now has to survive not by from the plant, but from the carbon that exists in the soil. Well, the most digestible carbon in the soil is the carbon that makes up the soil aggregates. So the biology consumes the carbon in the soil aggregates and the soil aggregates collapse. We have a compacted soil again, one that infiltrates one inch of water in one hour. But if we balance that carbon to nitrogen with a vegetative legume and a high carbon corn plant, uh, not to mention that plant is staying vegetative, and feeding that biology throughout the year, we can balance our carbon to nitrogen ratio. We have an energy source that keeps feeding those biological communities, the fungi, the bacteria, protozoa that are responsible for soil aggregates. And we keep stable soil aggregates, which is the name of the game. We cannot achieve soil health without stable soil aggregates. And that's why we're seeing these drastically improved water infiltration numbers. 
so that's the biggest thing for me. Again, yes, I can say, well, you know, you get an inch of rain in, in 10 minutes or half an hour, which happens all the time. You know, you're going to infiltrate that water rather than half of it running away, which is a big, big number. But I mean, that is also telling you something else that's very, very, very important, which is how functioning is your soil, which is the name of the game, in, in my opinion. Surprises me a little bit that the water infiltration tests aren't used more. Just with how cost effective they are, you can walk out there tomorrow and have a few like very minimal tools really to do the test. It costs you nothing other than a bit of time. And you can have like, like you said, a really good indication kind of of what's happening beneath your soil without having to do soil tests, which might cost a little bit more or some of those other tests that like you said, that would just require more resources. Well, and it's the most valuable time of all, in my opinion, because I have polled hundreds of farms and I say, how quickly does an inch of rain infiltrate on, uh, on your farm? And, and most people, one minute, three minutes, uh, I don't know, five, five to 10 minutes. When you tell them an hour, they almost don't believe you. When you stick a probe in the ground and you dump the water in and you've got an hour to stand there and talk, they have a realization that what is going on here? Why isn't that water going down? So it gives you time to stand there. And of course, you're going to check the cylinder 50 times, probably once a minute. But it gives you time to think and observe and and wonder, you know, okay, well, over there, it was uh, 20 minutes we infiltrated an inch of water. What happened over there? Why was I able to do that there? And this is here. Was it, did I overapply nitrogen? Did I till it? Just examples like that, where it's like a soil test, you're going to pay somebody to take the probe, you're going to get a, a thing in the mail that says, oh, you need to apply 150 pounds of nitrogen. Well, what did you learn about your, your soil? What did you learn about your land? Nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. So the, I think the most important thing with a water infiltrator is, I mean, curiosity. It stimulates thoughts in your head of what can I do differently here? Because nobody's happy with an hour infiltration rates on an inch of rain. And let me tell you, two inches, uh, you're not going to stand out there for a day, which is how long it takes two inches of moisture to infiltrate in most soils. So again, I thought when I was doing it 10 years ago, I'm like, everyone's going to be doing this in 10 years. Sadly, I was wrong, but we've made up a bunch at the office. I've got barrels of them. I'll tell you what, if you're buying cover crop seed, I'll just give you one and you promise me you're going to use it. It's just an amazing tool. I, I, the most important thing, if if I could have one tool, soil tests or feed tests or or whatever, to understand what we're producing on the farm, it would easily be the water infiltration tests. I know like for us, it's been really interesting on some of our rotationally graced pastures where we've done it. The biggest difference you can make as a cattle producer is rotational graze and rest time and you fix that problem overnight yeah it's it's a pretty easy fix if you can take the time and get in the mindset to do it 100 percent, yeah if producers are interested in growing the forage soybeans for the 2024 growing season how available are they and when do they need to order them by so they should be pretty available i mean we'll see what the spring run looks like there's discounts up until the 15th of march and if you're you're anywhere in Manitoba or wherever you're listening, just go on our website and, and look at our team or find a local dealer. You can find a map of all of our dealers across Western Canada. Just chat with the guys, guys or girls, of course. Uh, most of them are educated enough and 
I mean, we pride ourselves. Thank you for the plug on the website. Everything we do, we try and post as much as we can. Again, the the biggest holdup or the biggest anxieties behind most farms is there's just not enough information out there. So we try and pride ourselves on keeping the website, constantly updating it, new pictures, new data, you know, new stories to, to tell farm testimonials. So it really everything we, we, we try and pride ourselves that everything you need to know about growing either a cover crop or an intercrop that we sell is on the website. Yeah, there's still lots available. You can get five bucks an acre off uh, till March 15th. And I guess I should say too, we didn't talk about it, but there is funding available for cover crops for sure, but also the intercrop as well under the nitrogen reduction from the climate action funding. So if you apply for it, and and get the money, which I think most farms have over due time. Like it sometimes it takes a year, but yeah, you can get thirty five bucks an acre. Which if you book your seed now, that's actually the the cost of the seed. So for a pretty reasonable cost uh, of zero dollars, you can you can <laughs> try some experiments on your farm. Perfect. That's really good to know. And I feel like sometimes there's so many different programs, and the programs are switching so often that it's hard to keep up with them. So that's a really good. Good thing to mention for producers too. And I just want to speak to your website too. And I, this is, so this is the second time that I've had to do research for an episode on your website and it has to be one of the best websites. I don't know who does your website, but it's fantastically put together. I take zero credit. That is my business partner, Trav. He's the mastermind behind it. If you think the website's good, you're only seeing about 10% of it because he builds pages and, and spends whole, whole weekends uh, building, redesigning. Most of the website has been deleted because Trav wasn't happy with it or changed it. So I remember when we first started, we spent evenings, weekends, hours, weeks of our time getting verbiage and stuff like that. And I, I wanted to tell Trav, nobody's ever going to buy seed because of a website. And boy, I have to eat my words because he's just done a spectacular job. And and it's, it, it comes down to storytelling. It's like, tell a story that people can understand make it so people can relate to it and and be interested in it. Otherwise, you're not going to learn it. What is on the horizon for Covers & Co. in the 2024 growing season? Yeah, lots, uh, of course, going on. I mean, we've still got lots of research and projects going on with our blended mixes. Of course, corn intercrop is, <laughs> I'm biased, but I think it's it's going to be a practice that if you're growing corn, it's just going to be something that everyone does in 10 years. We've partnered with some professors and researchers to come up with a salinity blend. So our next webinar is actually uh, February 5th. We'll be talking with some researchers about salinity and best ways to manage those areas. Of course, our vision is solving problems on farm with plant diversity. So I don't want to give away the ending, but I kind of just did. And then we've also partnered with uh, Interlake Forage Seeds, who have been in perennial grass seed for like 40 years. We're really excited. Paul has come on and, and developed a, a few blends for us that he thinks are, are, are going to kill it in, in Western Canada. So obviously the same principles is what we've prided ourselves at, which is plant diversity, mimicking mother nature as best we can, and obviously educating farms on species and blend. So yeah, it's our first stab at kind of entering the perennial seed world, which we are not experts in. So yeah, it's nice to bring somebody on that's so educated and excited, vision aligned at, at what we're doing. So I guess that the other thing that we get asked a lot about is with grain farms, we are still trialing again this year, 
our flea beetle cover blend, which I won't spend a ton of time getting into, but essentially using plant diversity to grow with canola to dissuade flea beetles from entering the field. And then the crop is sprayed out at herbicide time and you're back to a monocrop canola field. So we've done two years worth of studies on that crop. There's also just a ton of research coming out of Europe every year. It just seems like <laughs> there's better and better data uh, coming out because neonicotinoids have been banned there. So all they're left with is is utilizing plant diversity to solve that problem. So it's really exciting what the future holds with with that blend. So lots going on, Chantel. That's awesome. It sounds like there's lots, like you said, there's so much going on. Can you share, you alluded to your February 5th webinar. Can you share any other guests that you have upcoming on your webinar series? Yeah. So, well, the first one I want to show to, we actually last night, so that was January 22nd, had an evolution of bale grazing podcast, which I didn't think was going to be that popular, but it was by far our most viewed webinar and the amount of texts and calls I've been getting today on it, it obviously resonated with people. So that one should be coming out uh, within the next day or two. You can just find it on YouTube. I talked about the Salinity webinar. So that's February 5th. Two weeks after that, we're talking about mob grazing cover crops, both benefit for livestock and soil and year following. And then relevant to this podcast, uh, the one after that, so March 4th, I think it is, is corn intercropping with forage soybeans. So we're going to have both producers that have grown it and uh, a researcher on. Obviously, myself, I have a ton of history and things to say on the intercrop. So that'll be an entire evening dedicated to talking about this specific intercrop. So if you guys are listening to this, just circle March, I believe it's March 4th in your calendar. You can sign up on our website, coversandco.ca. Yeah, you'll get to see all of our updated data, obviously farms that have grown it, what they liked, what they didn't like, some different research, just going to spend a couple hours answering questions and, and talking about opportunities and pros and cons of the intercrop. Nice. This is really appropriately timed then. Is there anything else that you'd like to share before we wrap up today? Geez, I talk a lot, Chantel. <laughs> I, I do. We've talked a lot about the website. You know, if you're a grain farmer out there or, or even a cattle farmer that's, you know, curious or, or not super interested, not a customer of ours, our website is we just spend so much time updating. The resource page, in my opinion, is the best way to get information on if, you know, if you're starting to dip your toes in understanding some of this stuff, we have just spent so many hours. And, and I say we, Trav has spent so many hours on helping farms understand carbon to nitrogen ratio. Mycorrhizal fungi, our page is, is, is fantastic. I honestly hop on to learn more, reference things. If you are interested in intercropping, we've just have lots of friends that were cool sharing data with us. So we've got seeding rates, herbicide options, how it worked out, yield. If you're one interested in the programming, what you're eligible for, whether that's perennial hay, salinity, cover crops, and there's information on the website uh, for that. Of course, and information on anything that we sell as well. We try and just post as much information, pictures, uh, customer testimonials just try and educate and tell a story as best we can. So yeah, my final thought would be if, if you're listening to this and you're curious, check out the website. You can spend a lot of time on there. Perfect. Thank you. As far as social media, where can people find you if they're looking for you? 
We're on all of them. Uh, I don't have anything to do with them. We are on Facebook. Uh, I believe you search Western Canadian Cover Crop Company. That's kind of our, our big one. On Instagram, we are, I think I think you can just search Covers & Co. We do have a TikTok account. I don't know what it is, but again, you can probably search us. And we are on Twitter or X or whatever it's called. Not as frequently, but we just update if we're doing webinars or farm meetings, whatnot, things like that. Sounds good. And I can do some research for those too and stick them into the show notes. Well, that's all I have for today. So I just want to say thank you so much for taking your time and sharing all of this information. And listeners, if you want to find out more, definitely head on over to the webinar. Thank you. I had a lot of fun. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Beef and Forage Roundup. For more information on the research projects or upcoming extension events, please visit us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MB Beef and Forage. For full project reports and more information about MBFI, please visit our website, mbfi.ca. If you have feedback on the show, questions about content, are interested in becoming a project partner or contributor, or want to submit a proposal for a research project topic, please email information at mbfi.ca. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to ensure you don't miss an upcoming episode. The research programs and daily operations at MBFI would not be possible without funding from the province of Manitoba, Government of Canada, and the Sustainable Canadian Agricultural Partnership, as well as partnership with Manitoba Agriculture, Manitoba Beef Producers, and Ducks Unlimited Canada.